Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. And so today we're going to jump into uh, everyone's favorite or least favorite topic, coronavirus. And how does this relate to the platform world? So uh, one one side of it is uh, is that, you know, we've spoken on the show before about how authoritarian governments dilute or pollute rather the value that uh, that platforms bring to society when and and ultimately because these authoritarian governments are using them for their own political purposes and it and it goes directly in the face of uh, the whole kind of value prop for consumers and producers and and just the platform value prop uh, and so we have a series of articles here documenting the um, this exact fact in terms of how the Chinese government uh, intercepted messages on WeChat, the communication platform owned by Tencent. So this is from the BBC that the Chinese app WeChat censored virus content since January 1st of 2020. And it goes on to talk about different cases where uh, Chinese citizens were having messages screened. It's an okay article. This article is actually better from The Verge. China reportedly using WeChat and Twitter to find and silence people sharing coronavirus information. And so this actually goes much deeper. So a Chinese man vacationing in California told Vice that he was trying to share information about the coronavirus with family in Wuhan on WeChat. He says he believes the Chinese government pushed friends in China to ask about his whereabouts in the U- U.S. and received a warning that someone in Shanghai was trying to access his WeChat account. Hmm, that's kind of fishy. Was the Chinese government snooping on his WeChat messages? Absolutely they were. Another man based in China said that officials visited him at his home. Not going to try to pronounce that. After he responded to a tweet that was critical of how the Chinese government handled the spread of the virus. The officials told him his tweet was an attack on the Chinese government and his phone was confiscated and he was forced to sign a statement saying he would not repeat the so-called threat. Wasn't this how they found some of the original doctors that were dealing with the basically early onset of the epidemic in December too? They were discussing well, it. And that's, that's my next article. So the next article here is from The Guardian. And what this is saying, I think this is this is pre-January 1st, so counter to what the BBC article was saying. Um, and so what it says here is this guy, uh, Lee, was, I guess, one of the orig- original whistleblowers, one of the Chinese doctors in right. Wuhan that was trying to you know, be a whistleblower about the virus saying, hey, this is a problem. We got to get on top of this, um, yada, yada, yada. You know, he's saying he spoke to the New York Times saying a healthy society cannot have just one voice. And, you know, in that one sentence, he identified the root cause of China's sickness. She suppresses truth and information to create his utopian, harmonious society. Um, So what did she do to prevent, you know, to cause all this hardship? So he notified his former medical classmates on WeChat that seven people with an unspecified coronavirus, which reminded him of SARS, were in quarantine at his hospital and advise them to protect themselves over WeChat, right? 
Yeah, I think he said like, "Don't leak this, but take precautions for yourself" or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, hey, hey, here's a heads up. On January third, Lee was visited by the police and reprimanded, and and probably similarly told to not say anything and don't communicate about this, and you know, hush hush. So basically, what we're finding, and the article goes on to talk about um, more cases here where doctors were trying to communicate with each other early on about seeing signs of, hey, what is this? It kind of looks like SARS. This is coronavirus. What is this thing? Hey, protect yourself. Hey, are you seeing this too? Right? And trying to communicate over WeChat. That's the whole purpose of a communication platform, to connect people and let them exchange information. That's one of the key value props of platforms, right? To help bring break down these barriers and let people connect and share information. But in the hands of an authoritarian government that says, you know what, I don't want people talking about this. Right. Um, and I'm going to send police to people's doors and actually reprimand them in person or t- confiscate their phone or have them sign a document. This article here is saying that it believes that Weibo, one of the Chinese social media sites in Platt, has removed over 2 million posts in one day that are referencing things related to either, you know, keywords, coronavirus, Wuhan, you know, SARS, whatever, right? Millions of posts every day are being taken down in China on different content, social media, communication platforms, because the government says so. And it's a big problem. You know, it's a big problem on the front lines with the practitioners and the doctors that are trying to coordinate and solve this and just figure out what was going on in the early days of the virus, which could have saved probably a countless think, number of lives. I think there's two things that in terms of the surveillance that you saw. One is the first thing was finding people that are talking about this and then cracking down on them, basically IRL. And then the third, the second, which is after that started to happen, then you had the proactive censoring of future conversations so that the information couldn't spread beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both, both are basically, as you've described, ways of government using the tools of platforms to prevent the spread of information. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. It's, it's an unfortunate uh, dynamic in, in the role of large tech monopolies in these authoritarian regimes. Okay. So that's one platform coronavirus dynamic. Another one is Sequoia. One of the infamous VC firms says that coronavirus is the black swan of 2020. They sent out a letter to all of the founders and CEOs of their portfolio companies. Basically said, batten down the hatches. Basically said, you know what has hit the fan, and you better be prepared for a very long, arduous road ahead. We suggest you question every assumption about your business, (laughs) including your cash. How much money you can raise. You know that big customer you were trying to acquire? Yeah, you may not hit your sales forecasts. Marketing headcount. Hey, maybe you want to fire some people. <laughs> I don't look at this letter and, and say, wow, thank you, Sequoia. You're such a great partner. What, a, what an amazing advisor and investor. You know, if this was a supportive letter, it should be Sequoia saying, hey, founders, we believe in you. We think this coronavirus thing will come and pass. Take a positive light on it. You need to take it seriously. And we are also going to 
make available additional funds, you know, if you run into these issues. Um, we are here to help you. And we are here as a backstop if you run into issues because this is a blip and we believe in you over the long term, right? Like that is the message I want to hear from my lead investor, not you're screwed. You're on your own. Good luck. Right. You better do some layoffs. I think a lot of the information in here too is uh, not non-obvious. And if I'm a founder of a startup, I'm obviously already thinking about all right, what is my runway? Can I raise capital? You know, our big customer is going to start saying no. So it, I don't know. It, to me, it, I agree. It's not a very helpful approach to take. It's in not, there's no new information. Right. It just, I, I think it's dumb and, and, and it just incites panic in all your portfolios and it doesn't do anything to help them. Like, what are you doing? You, what are you telling them to everyone work from home? Great. I mean, you could have done that without going to this extent. Right. So I disagree with the approach. And if anything, if I'm a large traditional enterprise, it's feeding frenzy time. Literally, the, one of the biggest VCs in the world just said, hey, portfolios, you're screwed. They didn't say, hey, I've got money. Don't worry. They said, you're screwed. Good luck. If I'm a big traditional incumbent, what this means to me is, oh, I've got a lot more leverage. I can go get some really good deals right now. Particularly with a lot of very low interest loans. <laughs> if I want to back it up with that. Yeah. And you know what? If you're a large incumbent, you have access to the capital markets. You know, the measures that right. the Fed and 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 the federal government will or actually are already working to put into place, all those measures will help large traditional incumbents, particularly the public companies that have access to the debt markets and these things. These illiquid companies don't get any of that benefit and their VC partner just told them to go screw. So there's much more leverage now. It, this is kind of like, you know, when we would talk to uh, big real estate firms post WeWork debacle, we would say, hey, look, if you're a real estate tech startup, you're in a really tough spot right now. And that means if I'm a large real estate firm, you know, I've got a lot of leverage to, to wield over these real estate tech companies. Um, that same uh, concept just got applied to basically the entire tech startup landscape. Yep. Because all of the big incumbents, yes, this will be painful. Well, I would say with the exception of a few areas that are doing well, for the most part, a lot of industries are going to be hurting, particularly the startups within them. Exactly. So, yeah, I, again, I disagree with the approach. And if you're a CEO of a large traditional enterprise, you know, game on. So thanks, Sequoia. Um, so there's been, a, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of the stock market has just been bonkers. Um, you know, it's been up and down and all these kinds of things. So fortunately, you know, so what are you going to do in the stock market? Do you get out of the stock market? I can't give you advice about what to do in the stock market, but I can say some of what I have uh, personally done. And so at the end of last week, I took out a bunch of shorts on platform stocks. I don't, I mean, I follow some non-platform stocks, but I basically just follow the platform stocks. And so I picked the platform stocks that were, in my opinion, more vulnerable, which, you know, what my thought was, what are the platform stocks that are going to have a tougher time that are tied to kind of like physical in-person physical in-person yeah. type of assets. So I shorted Zillow. 
I shorted um, some of the car marketplaces like Auto Home and uh, KAR Car. I think I think that's the European one. Um, I shorted uh, Lyft, the smaller of the two uh, rideshare marketplaces, and the one that doesn't do and, delivery and doesn't do <laughs> uh, food delivery because I don't know. You're probably not going to want to go to restaurants, I guess. Um, I shorted. Um, what else? Um, Zillow, the cars. Oh, I had been shorting Grubhub for a while just because I didn't like Grubhub that much um, compared to uh, Uber Eats and um, DoorDash. DoorDash. I always forget DoorDash's name. You know, I think I think, though, you're going to continue to see. This rockiness and this kind of oscillating in the market, I mean, I think there will still you know, the market might go up today and tomorrow, but. I still think that as the effects of coronavirus um, really spread more aggressively into the cities, you know, if you have now hundreds of cases in each of the main cities, you're going to see this panic continue. It'll be a lot more than that in a couple of weeks. So (laughs) you're going to see these sell offs continue. Um, I think ultimately, you know, uh, um, all of this gets figured out. And, you know, uh, uh, things subside and, and eventually return to normal. But in the interim, if you feel comfortable, there actually are a lot of interesting kind of day trading opportunities. If you're trying to play off of just it's like trying to understand panic, basically, there's really no fundamentals going on in this. Even my logic around like real estate and cars and, and, and the smaller ride sharing company. I mean, everything was down yesterday. so. It wasn't like I'm some genius that says, oh, now the interesting thing is that Zillow and and Grubhub are actually still very much so down today and Lyft is down today, um, but the car marketplaces are up today. So why is that? I don't know. No one really knows. Um, but uh, but the digital platforms, what's also interesting is, you know, Facebook is way down. Amazon's really not down that much. Uh, Amazon's only really been down a handful of percentage points. I think I think if it's Facebook, it's partly because their revenue is all advertising. Right. So if you're if other people that would buy advertising are curtailing their advertising spend, that's going to affect Facebook's revenue. Amazon uh, has a different problem, which is they've got third party sellers and they need to continue to be able to make deliveries and make sure stuff is in stock. And that's the challenge they've been having. But it's not like people aren't. Spending on Amazon stuff, they actually have the other other problem. Yeah, they're buying a lot, and they right. don't want to go into the store, right. and the stores are out of stock. So Amazon's actually down the least, followed then by Microsoft, Google, and Apple. And fa- Facebook and Apple are kind of you know down the same amount. I think though, I mean, it makes sense to me on Apple being down the most supply chain them. issue, right? supply chain issues. They have the most exposure to China, um, but you know Microsoft. Um, I don't know. It doesn't make too much sense to me. If, if anything, I would be bullish on Microsoft of all the kind of work at home and work remotely products that they have with Teams right. and Office 365 right. and the stuff they've been building up there. I think that this could be an accelerant for that part yep. of the business. You know, the ad related businesses, I get it. Um, I, you know, that makes more sense to me. But yeah. um, I don't think there's as much logic in, you know, in, in kind of the sell off as just kind of everyone doing the sell off. Um, The other thing was that, you know, Ray Dalio had a post uh, about um, all of this on LinkedIn. And the one thing that he was saying on this on on this uh, 
post kind of lays out a, a bunch of different future states. And um, one of the interesting things that he was saying is the market isn't really going to delineate between companies that are healthier or not as healthy. And particularly what he was saying is that when you want to look at their balance sheet, and if you look at economies that are stronger or less strong, the less strong ones are the ones that when you have these massive sell-offs and you have this kind of a wholesale change in, say, consumer sentiment, uh, buying profiles, um, and so on and so forth, the, the, the weaker players, whether that's the weaker economies or the weaker companies, are the ones that are actually in trouble. And the ones that are stronger, stronger balance sheet, essentially, you know, short-term pain, but net-net, they'll be okay. The weather, the change. Exactly. And so what he's talking about here is that the market isn't very good at saying, hey, let me, let me look at the underlying health of the business when the sell-off happens, right? right? And so if you as an investor can understand that, and that's the interesting thing about kind of these platform picks that I'm talking about, right? The large tech monopoly stocks, great balance sheets, unbelievable balance sheets, right? The smaller platform stocks in plat that are maybe single digit billions in market cap. You kind of see that with some of the car marketplaces, even like the Zillow's and the Redfin's and real estate. They're actually somewhat small businesses, like few billion dollars in market cap. And Zillow's been losing a lot of money on Zillow offers trying to do get the linear buying and, and reselling of, of houses going. So that's the, the non-platform part of its business where basically it takes a bunch of housing inventory on its balance sheet, yep. which could be a challenge. Lyft, same thing, right? It's the smaller of the two ride-sharing marketplaces. It doesn't have platform conglomerate status like an Uber. Right. Its business isn't diversified into other areas that in this case are doing better like delivery. It's losing money. It has less of an ability, I think, to curtail or get to break even than an Uber does for all of those reasons. And so, you know, what are those companies that have a little bit of a weaker balance sheet um, that are much smaller and, uh, and, and are maybe in verticals that are going to be more affected, like big purchases, big physical purchases? You know, that to me are the kinds of things that you're about to go buy a house. You know, I'm going to wait a little bit. Let me see what happens. Um, or because I was about particularly to, given that the housing market is still priced fairly high at the moment. Exactly. So that's the kind of stuff that to me, understanding if you don't want to do these like day by day shorts, because that's kind of bonkers, but you know, like to have a little bit of fun. And, uh, but if you're thinking a little bit more short to midterm, those are some of the things that I think about when, when thinking about these different stocks, uh, at least in the platform world. Uh, I'm sure I, Everyone else can figure out like the Purell's. Uh, that's not my game. So let's move on to Roblox. Um, there's a really great article about Roblox. So basically, uh, who is it? Andreessen put a bunch of money in recently. Andreessen put a bunch of money in and they said, hey, we think this company could be the future of gaming. Really long article. But let's go all the way to this. So this, if you play this video, this is this is from Minecraft, which Microsoft bought for two and a half. Microsoft bought for two and a half billion dollars a handful of years ago. Um, but basically, the idea is that you can create you can create worlds, you can create games within the, within the game. And that same concept is in Roblox. 
Uh, Nick, why don't you do you want to describe it at a high level? Yeah, so Roblox, I know a little bit about. I have a, a younger, much younger sibling that plays it, so uh, that's my exposure there. Most of the audience or the core part of their audience are basically uh, kind of elementary school to high school kind of age kids, uh, but they do have some flying with adults. Basically, Roblox started out as they have a Roblox kind of game engine. They've created a basically massively multiplayer online game and then opened that up to third parties to say, go create other game worlds, go create other games that you can connect to. So the way I would describe it is think of like World of Warcraft. They have this massively multiplayer online game, but rather than creating everything you do in the game themselves, they open that up to third party developers and said, you go create that and basically turned it into kind of a game store. Or if you've seen uh, Ready Player One or read the book, uh, basically this kind of idea of a metaverse, it's kind of an early stage version of that. You're not like living it in VR, but basically you go in and other people have created these game worlds. You can buy items that uh, other users have created. You can purchase access to games. So think of it like buying a game through a game store, and then you can go in through the Roblox game world to get access to the other games. So it's this kind of uh, game within a game and also other people building all these other things and creating basically user generated content and games within it. So it's definitely a, a kind of development platform or games, uh, and I yep. think it's been quite successful at that. Development platform for games, kind of like Ready Player One, I like that. This is the, a chart of their uh, game hours, monthly hours of playtime, uh, excluding viewers on YouTube or Twitch, right? So it's a nice curve. Everyone wants that curve. Um, but here's the more interesting thing to me. More than 50 million games have been made on the Roblox studio. Right of which 5,000 have had more than 1 million plays. That's impressive. 1,000 have hit 10,000 concurrent players, and 10 have had more than 1 billion plays. So it's kind of like an app store in and of itself, right? Where you have those big uh, breakaway wins. Um, many more, much more production than, than Roblox could have ever just created on its own. Roblox paid $100 million to developers against $500 million in uh, user-generated content-based revenue. Maybe that means uh, paid $100 million to uh, small teams, and then there's a, another $500 million in the maybe well, the in-game purchases. Kinds of, yeah, there's like these uh, people create you know clothing and other small items and collectibles that you can use for your character in the game. So there, there's you know, third-party developers making games, and then there's kind of microtransactions. Right. So collectively, they're paying out more than $500 million, it seems. Um, so I like this. You know, we've talked on the show about what are some other dev platforms that can, uh, that can rise to dominance. We've spoken about the car. And about drones. It, and drones, and I yep. think this is... This is, is this is another one. It's like a video game console within within a within right. a video so game. I think, I think the analogy I would use is you've seen all these guys trying to move to streaming services. So you had Google Stadia, Microsoft uh, is trying to do this, PlayStation is trying to do this. But really, what you're starting to see is it's actually the gaming companies that are doing this already. And you can kind of think of this as a uh, a kind of streaming or online access to games. You don't need the physical console. Uh, to go do it and you basically just do it through the digital world and they've created this gaming engine which is really the core part of what developers need more than the kind of physical hardware standardized to make this successful 
Uh, and I, th- I think that what you might see is a lot of these guys moving in the kind of streaming subscription game direction are not successful and that this might actually be the model that works. I think you're starting to see Epic uh, moving in this direction with Fortnite. Imagine a world war, for example, the Fortnite kind of uh, uh, Epic games engine. I think it's Unreal Engine mm-hmm. uh, isn't, isn't just used for Fortnite uh, games and Epic games, but they're opening it up and letting you connect to that through the world of Fortnite. They've already started to tease this with uh, collaborations they do with other partners and kind of make events within the game as well as like concerts and other things with the game. So they don't need to create all the experiences themselves. They basically created the world and built the Mm -hmm. consumer audience. And now they could open that up to developers. So there's a handful of folks that basically have the ability to go do this. Rockstar would be another one uh, that I think would be interesting. EA potentially as well uh, that have that. And then the idea is, can you go create this developer platform and community around it? And Sony is doing it with uh, Sony unveiled its dreams creation platform. Disney tried to do this seven years ago with this thing called Disney Infinity, which then got shut down a few years later. We've seen a lot of people try. I mean, Minecraft is essentially this that Microsoft bought. And the the analogy the guy uses in this article, which I think is apt is how he gets into the Disney example is basically it's like a digital theme park where you can go and interact and play and create all these experiences. The old version of this or the analog version is the actual physical theme park. And Disney approached the digital version of it too much like the analog where everything was controlled and kind of created by Disney. Uh, whereas the ones that are succeeding are much more open and enabling mm-hmm. others to go and actually create those experiences. Yeah. I wonder why this is winning against Minecraft. You know, maybe that'll be uh, that'll be our next our next topic on on the follow up show. You know, why? How is this thing able to differentiate, even though you do have a large dev platform for games game within a game uh, already in existence so we'll take a look at that okay last topic so let me see if i can pull up this little snippet here so we covered this on the show from, from the palm beach studio i missed the palm beach studio um here, here's the little snippet on, uh, on what we spoke about with the EU trying to create, you know, an EU tech economy. And, and this is what they've done to it. That's what we're going to talk about here. Here's their attempt at doing that. Europe's had basically a lost generation because they don't really have a tech community with the amount of regulation that the EU has created. What you're now doing is you're hurting the tech unicorns, the tech startups that need to also comply with these laws. It's a great premise. Hey, we need to have our own tech community in Europe. Yeah, you're right. I would say we probably have some of the best best um, viewers and, and audience members out of any show. I mean, look, this video has 50 views. We have 10 comments. And these are all high quality comments. You know, people are talking about different perspectives about Europe and Silicon Valley VC backed startups and, and what's going on. I mean, look at this. It's actually amazing. Uh, so, you know, this is why we do it. It's for all of you. So um, I'm glad that, you know, there's conversation going on here on these topics. This clearly has struck a chord with uh, some of the folks watching. So in this in this clip, what we talk about is that EU has regulated. It's just so ironic, like they regulate the hell out of their environment, yet they say they want to build an EU tech ecosystem. And then they continue to pass all these crazy laws that apply to everyone. And then they kill whatever kind of like 
flame of tech community they have, right? And I honestly, full disclosure, I didn't read this release. I didn't even get more than three paragraphs in. And, And I don't need to read more than three paragraphs in. Let's see how long this is. See this? This is all just a waste of my time. That I saved all this time. You want to know why I don't need to read more than three paragraphs into this joke of a rule? It's because of this. As part of the digital single market strategy, the new rules will apply to the entire online platform economy. Approximately 7,000 online platforms or marketplaces operating in the EU, which include world giants as well as very small startups. It's so stupid. I don't. I don't understand. We looked up how much money these people get made. It's a few hundred thousand dollars and it's a few hundred thousand dollars too much because they're idiots. It's not difficult to understand that if you're a large tech monopoly, they literally cover it in here. World giants. If you're a world giant, are you going to be able to comply with these rules more easily or less easily then, and they literally have it in here. Very small startups. Riddle me that, Miss Vestager, or whoever, Vice President of the Digital Single Market, Andrus Ansip, Bozo. Of course, the large tech monopolies are going to be able to comply. The large tech monopolies are rejoicing at the fact that there's more regulation. This is exactly what we spoke about with GDPR. It helps the large tech monopolies. Bring on the rules. I'm already a tech monopoly. What do I care? Create rules. I probably paid my lobbyists to help inform you bozos about what rules to put in place in the first place. Now I have a thousand people that can go make sure we're super compliant about this. And I'll have another 200 people that are going to be sending you notices when all of my smaller competitors don't comply. Right. Now, now I no longer have to worry about buying the next WhatsApp because you just killed the next WhatsApp. <laughs> and now now the next WhatsApp needs to divert resources. They've got maybe 500 engineers total. They've got to go divert 50 of them to go focus on these rules. I'm not even talking about what's in the rules. I didn't even read what's in the rules. I don't need to read what's in the rules. The whole point is how the EU goes about doing regulation. This isn't about what the regulation is. I think it's a fine direction. You got to you need to protect the producers. We've spoken on the show about how California's AB5 law is completely dumb because the the two biggest gripes of producers um on these service marketplaces is can the platform arbitrarily just raise the rate uh on me and I have no say and can the platform kick me off or penalize me and is there any kind of uh you know rebuttal process and and that actually seems to be what these rules are trying to get at. They're right. trying to protect the producer, which is a well-intentioned thing. The problem is how the EU goes about actually implementing these rules because they say one thing, which is, hey, it would be really nice to have a tech community in Europe. Yeah, it would be really nice to have a tech. But you're not going to get a tech community when you regulate the hell out of all these. Literally, they have very small startups. All right. What you really should be focusing on is the handful of what they call in the finance community, systemically important institutions 
the concept absolutely would apply in the same way to the big tech monopolies. You could find some kind of metric of market power or concentration, or if you wanted a blunt instrument revenue threshold and say, once you reach this, I think you, you do it GMV, on, I think you do it on platform conglomerate status or not. Anyway, th- th- there's, there's multiple ways you could slice it, but you really want to be looking at these regulations on the ones that are big monopolies, monopolies. that have market power and not putting the burden on the, you know, uh, I say 6,950 other or so right. that are small so, startups. 6,990. I mean, <laughs> you want, because what you want for the top five or 10 market, you want the, the number, you know, three, four, five marketplaces to be able to be a few steps ahead, right? right? And kind of push them and and out innovate. And I don't know. It's just a joke. Like, I feel like I'm a broken record. This is why I kind of feel bad for talking about this yet again on the show. It's just the same theme over and over and over. These guys just clearly don't get it. They say they want this and then they go do this, right? It's just, ay, yay, yay. You should honestly just leave. If you're a one of these very small, uh, very small startups, just call it a day. Come to the U.S. Your life's going to be way better. We don't have this craziness here, and this stuff's only going to continue. I mean, it's been now, it's been years that they've been doing this. They clearly haven't learned. I mean, they you you want guess how many people probably reviewed this press release before it went out? Probably fifty people. Like it's not like Miss Vestager doesn't know that they're planning to apply these rules to 7,000 companies. Like this has been in the works. I guarantee for months it's been reviewed at infinitum and no one ever decided to raise their hand and say, should we not have this apply to the very small startups? You know, no, that didn't come through. So I, I give up between GDPR and all the stuff. I mean, for a startup to have to comply with GDPR, I mean, what are you trying to do? It's just, it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. Let me try right. and actually build a business and then let me worry about and all these other as things. As we covered on the show or on GDPR, the practical impact of that was, yes, there were some privacy regulations, but basically you consolidated Google and Facebook's market share because they were able to bear the cost of complying and a lot of small startups wouldn't and some just went out of business. Yeah, and Marriott and British Airways got fined for like $100 right. million dollars each, <laughs> right? Which you, is a... Really what we needed was Marriott and British Airways were being too aggressive on their data collection. Right, yeah, GDPR was drafted with Marriott and British Airways in mind. Oh, man, these companies are so bad. They just abuse their customer data so aggressively. We need to draft up a whole law regulating privacy in Europe. So every single person needs to click on a really annoying pop-up on every single website they go to. And then we're only going to give more market power to Google and Facebook. And then we're going to find Marriott and British Airways and let's go do this. This sounds like a great idea. That's the EU uh, regulatory um, mindset for you. So um, anyway, we'll see what happens with this, but guarantee it's not going to be good news if you're a uh, up and coming tech startup in Europe. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining. And we will talk to you on Thursday.